You're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. Give me a full ballerina skirt and a hint of saloon and I'm on board. Mm. Welcome to the She Became Visible podcast. I'm your host, Renee Steelman. This podcast is my story. It's your story. It's our story. It's all the stories of all the women who one day knew that it was time to remember who they were, who they are, and stand up and be seen. Hello. Welcome to my coven. I just felt that it is appropriate that I wear the um, the uh, sanctioned headdress for all of you witches out there. Uh, we are going to be talking about magic. We're going to be talking about um, shape shifting. And um, we're going to be talking about lies and frauds. That's what we're going to be talking about in reality, okay? But I just felt like it was the time of the season and with everything that's going on right now, it just seemed really appropriate that I invite Vivian, as you see, Vivian is always over my shoulder. And, um, but we're gonna be just gonna be talking about a little bit of magic and a little bit of church history, but especially I'm going to be talking uh, and also highlighting the wonderful work of Lynn Packer once again, because he he explains everything so well. There, it's the I could add nothing to what to what he has done. His research and the way that he formulates it is so beautiful. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. So I just wanted to emphasize that um, part of my awakening really was in delving into church history. And one of the things that you learn when you start reading about church history, now when I say church history, I mean you have to get out of the aisle at Deseret Books that has the Saints series and all of the other brouhaha nonsense that is there at Deseret Books. You have to find things like... Um, Michael D. Michael Quinn. You have to find his books where he, this one in particular is early Mormonism and the magic worldview. And what I love about Dr. Quinn is that he died a faithful believing uh, Mormon. He had been excommunicated. So he wasn't um, able to teach the way he did, but they, there were people that use their platform to bring him in and to let him speak and tell his story. And um, boy, it's because of his work and his work, you guys, is cuckoo. I mean, it is, this is not an easy read. This is not just take this to the beach and sit down in your lawn chair. I mean, let me just, oh gee, I just, I just turned to it and it was a highlighted page. Let me read what it says. It says, however, Jesse's letter did not embarrass his relatives 
at Palmyra, and six years later, Joseph Jr. had it copied into his official letter book. One reason for the Mormon prophet's apparent pride in his uncle's condemnation was the irony of Jesse Smith's 1829 emphasis on Jane's and Jambers. In American editions of 1823 and 1827, I don't know what it's talking about, but I had highlighted it, so that's where I was. Um, four eyewitnesses reported that the Smiths used divining rods in the Palmyra area, and BYU's Anderson described one of those neighbors as most favorable to the Smith reputation. According to Orlando Saunders, both Joseph Sr. and Jr. frequently divined the presence of water by a forked stick or hazel rod. Typical of his positive memories of the Smiths, in his interview, Saunders added that the Smith family worked for his father and for himself. He, Orlando, gave them the credit of being good workers. So he was a positive influence. But this is just, I mean, this is just a very intelligent man that did his research and recorded it. And um, he has blessed the lives of so many scholars because of his work. Anyway, so that's what we're doing today. We're going to be talking about the magic and the um, the work that that other people have done to bring to historical relevance the past. And I'm telling you, people, I am a little confused at the people that are hanging on so tightly to Joseph Smith's um, declaration of his uh, being a prophet and having seen. Uh, angels and Jesus Christ and God himself and being directed by God himself. And they are hanging on to their testimony so tightly because I think, now this is just strictly my opinion. I think that they, um, they are frightened. They're scared to death because the church means so much to them. It is such a part of their DNA that the idea that it could be a 19th century creation, that the whole thing could be a facade, frightens them to death. And their only way of surviving is to hang on to Joseph Smith and to deny that there was any wrongdoing. And when I see some of these podcasts and I hear really intelligent people that have done the work Brian Hales and John Hammond and other people go on their shows, show them the money. They showed them the history. Here is the documented history. And they're still like, no, no, I'm sorry. That's not a contemporary source. That isn't, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear it. Therefore it's not true. It's just absolutely amazing. So, I mean, there were so many things. There's the magic, there's the occult, there is the Captain Kidd, as, as we have in that picture. And it's all kind of outlined by Lynn Packer, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So let's just get started here. Sitting in the whole bunch of you together, and you're all looking at a cell phone. I hope that Elder Oaks and my voice haunt you now. <laughs> But you'll put those things away and look up and say, hi, I'm, Elder ba I'm Russ Ballard, what's your name? And you start a conversation. That'll help solve this brother's problem down in Mexico. Yes, it will. And in terms of haunting you, I say, boo. There you go. Unfortunately, their voices are haunting. They are haunting. And that, that I'm going to have to put that 
clip on my on a TikTok because I just thought it was so appropriate to get this thing started. So let's just talk a little bit about the secrecy and the fraud. And here is my thing. There is a logical fallacy out there. And even my true believing Mormon husband has used this, especially when the SEC uh, thing came out and the church was fined for um, misappropriation and just really illegal shell companies. And he admitted that that was wrong. He said that was wrong. But the next sentence after that was wrong was he correlated it with other corporations that have done the same thing. And I can't remember which logical fallacy that is, but when you um, have two wrongs become a right, that is a logical fallacy. And the fact that a, a large secular corporation does really bad illegal things and then to say oh, well i mean i'm not surprised that the church does that because these other corporations do that it's like but but this corporation is supposed to be run by god this corporation is the only true corporation on the earth and it is literally being directed by jesus christ i don't think the apple corporation has ever professed that I don't think Steve Jobs ever stood up and said, I received an angelic messenger last night with a revelation and a full a vision of what a new product called the Apple iPhone should look like. They never profess that. That's the difference. That's what makes the difference. So let's just talk a little bit about other frauds that are going on. The ancient wisdom that there's a sucker born every minute has been especially pertinent given the financial disasters of the past few years. So it's time for a short and painless test. Are you sometimes just too trusting? Do you invest in things you don't really understand? Are you also a bit greedy? Then you too could be suffering from pigeon fever. Pigeons, just so you know, are what con men call their victims. After a year of revelations about Bernard Madoff, who cheated investors out of billions, you might think Americans have wised up. Fat chance. Prosecutors and regulators tell us that even in this age of skepticism, Ponzi schemes like Madoff's are thriving. One regulator even calls it Ponzimonium. Why are there so many pigeons around? We asked a few people who should know. So let's just talk about that a little bit. Um, you, I agree with Morley Schaefer here, Schaefer, um, when he says, when you have things like the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme and the amount of money and the amount of people that he destroyed their lives, you would think that that would be a wake up call. That would people would do a little bit more homework, that they would research the nonprofit that they have been asked to donate to. But it hasn't changed. And the, and the question is, why? Why are people so continually robbed? And, and why are they so gullible? That, and the Tim Ballard thing that's going on right now is a perfect example. I mean, I don't know where. If you were to combine what Bernie Madoff did and what Tim Ballard has done, I don't know which one is worse. And I think what's ironic is Tim Ballard really stole 
a lot of money from Mormon institutions, Mormon people, people who belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or are affiliated with the church in some way. And Bernie Madoff took advantage of his Jewish connections and hurt people from that religion. And Morley's gonna talk about that a little bit. So let's listen to it a little bit more. As a student of con games and deception, were you at all surprised by the Bernie Madoff scam? And would you be surprised if I told you that I predicted it? For starters, we approached Ricky Jay, America's foremost card sharp, actor, sleight of hand artist, a man with an encyclopedic knowledge of con men past and present. He told us of a talk he gave seven years before Madoff's fall. Beware of someone well-established in the industry. A lecture on financial fraud to a gathering of police officers in 2001. I would also beware of someone who will rely heavily on an affiliation with an investor group, be it religious, ethnic, or geographic. He was describing Madoff to a T. I think these elements will make the market ripe for any sort of pyramid or Ponzi scam, Ricky Jack. And that is pure Bernard Madoff. It's pure Bernie Madoff. But can I tell you another element of the con? That I actually made this page on Photoshop last night and put it into this bulletin. And I did that to prove a point. And the point you is... Had, you got me. Good. You set it up by saying that I was a student of cons and that I'm knowledgeable in that area. And so you allowed my supposed expertise to make you believe this is true. This magazine is true. I really have lectured to this group of police against confidence crime. Everything is true except for this page, which I slipped in last night. So let's talk about that. You know, one of the things when I listen to a lot of the Tim Ballard uh, keynote speeches that he has given at doTERRA and uh, a group of Ogden uh, physicians, the Air Force Academy, I mean, Vivint, I mean, he has spoken to a lot of uh, very wealthy, intelligent people. And he usually starts out either in his introduction or he himself will mention that he was an agent with Homeland Security. And there's something about the military, uh, Homeland Security, any kind of FBI, CIA, in security, that there's an assumption that these people are on a different level somehow. And that if they have been vetted to be able to work in that industry, then undoubtedly they are smart, they are honest, and only forthright. And so he always starts out by giving this credential that he has 12 years. Well, I happen to know that the FBI recruits heavily from the Mormon church, that BYU is a big source, a, a resource for the FBI and the CIA, because Mormons have a reputation for being honest and family man and and uh, family oriented and and they're not going to uh, be cheaters or liars. And that's the persona that is put out for members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so they recruit heavily from BYU and for gosh, Tim Ballard, I mean, he looked, as I've mentioned before, he could be a character out of the musical. I mean, the square jaw, the blue eyes, the blonde hair. He makes Jim Gaffigan, you know, Jim Gaffigan has a thing in his stand-up <laughs> where he says, people have told me in Utah that I look like a Mormon. 
And then he says, I didn't know you could look like a religion, but it's true. There is a look, right? People will say, oh, I went on vacation. I knew right away that family was LDS. There's a look. And so the FBI and like I said, the CIA, they recruit heavily from the church. And but but I love that he said that first you lay out your expertise, you lay out your 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 authority, and then you can go on with your your con. So what's what's the moral? Trust no one. We wouldn't want to live in a world where we couldn't be conned because in effect, we would then be living in a world where we mistrusted or refused to trust anyone. So this is the price we pay. And pay we have. In the wake of the Madoff scandal, Ponzi perp walks have become a marathon. Texas financier Alan Stanford accused of a $7 billion Ponzi scheme. Minnesota businessman Tom Petters convicted recently of a $3 billion scam. And Park Avenue lawyer Mark Dreyer, mastermind of a mere $400 million Ponzi scheme that landed him first on 60 Minutes and then in federal prison. I thought if somebody would ever interview me in a program such as yours, it would be for something good I've done, not something humiliating I've done. Just a quick comment. Um, does anybody know the amount of money that OUR took in from donations? I'm wondering if we were to compare the uh, 400 million, I believe he just said this that this man took in, compared to the amount of money that um, OUR took in from donations. I, I'd be curious if anybody knows. Uh, one of you statistician people out there, let me know. Despite the downfall of the dryers and the Madoffs, Ponzi operators, large and small, are busier than ever knowing we're all capable of greed, misplaced trust, and something else. I think it's anxiety. It's anxiety that you're losing out, that other people are doing better than you are. Stephen Greenspan is a University of Colorado professor who writes and lectures on gullibility, warning audiences that not reading the fine print or buying something on a tip from your brother-in-law are bad ideas and that older people are particularly vulnerable to a friendly pitch from a con man. In most of the great moments of gullibility in history, the perpetrator seems to target a particular group, correct? Yes. There have been Mormon Ponzi schemes targeting Mormons or fundamentalist Christians. Uh, Madoff uh, mostly was aimed at Jews because he was a prominent Jewish philanthropist. So yes, there is this affiliation aspect of it because we tend to trust our own kind. Here in 1990. So let's talk about that. We trust our own kind. And that's where Tim Ballard has been able to be so successful. Um, as I mentioned, I heard about this at least three years ago. I was living in Vancouver, Washington, and someone talked about OUR. And I looked it up. And I'm not saying that I have any kind of special powers. I don't know, maybe, we'll see. But there was something about the, uh, Tim Ballard was talking about a helicopter drop-in and how he had gone on this operative and they had flown in. And it could have been, if, if, I, if my memory serves me right, it could have been even when he was just talking about his St. George uh, event that he held, which was a fundraiser. And I know they flew in on a helicopter and landed, but there was something that was off to me about a nonprofit 
um, group of guys playing soldier, dropping down from a helicopter that made me kind of go, mm, I don't know about that. There was just something that was a real turnoff to me, especially when you're talking about sex trafficking children. And I do think there's been a lot of mixture of the idea of sex trafficking versus sex trafficking children. But Tim Ballard was smart enough to throw children into that because that is what will pull on our heartstrings, right? When we think about our, our babies and our children. And Lynn is going to bring out a lot of statistics that just throw that thing right out the window. But let's see if there's anything else that Morley has to say. Teen is Charles Ponzi self-styled financial wizard, loafing at his Boston mansion with his lovely wife and proud and adoring mother. Mr. Ponzi himself promised fellow Italian immigrants he could make them rich trading in postal reply coupons, sort of the prepaid phone cards of the day. Ponzi went to prison and died a pauper. I went out looking for trouble. I found it. But his name lives on for the fraud he made famous. The basic concept is robbing Peter to pay Paul. You have a fund of new money coming in, and you use the new money to pay the old investors. But at a certain point, that has to stop. Gullibility is at the very core of this, correct? I mean, Absolutely. I mean, All right, so let's talk about that. It makes me really curious when I look at this last conference, and I listen to Neil Anderson and... Uh, Russell Nelson, both, and uh, there could have been some others, but those are the, the conference talks that pop out at me. But when they were talking about tithing, here we are, we, they've just gotten caught having 13 illegal shell companies. They were fined a pittance compared to the crime that they committed. And they were able to walk away, say, we made a mistake and there will be no conversation about this in the future. We're done. We're not talking about it anymore. And members of the church went, okay, we believe you. We believe you. You, We are part of this tribe. You are our people. We sustain you. We believe you. So just having experienced that, they are able to go to a general worldwide conference and ask you to donate money. And everyone was like, yeah. It has nothing to do with money. It's all about faith. They bought it. They bought it. And that is the part that is so absolutely confusing to me. And But I like what this gentleman said, where we have to live in a world, because otherwise you turn in a skeptic and you, you turn into a skeptic and you don't believe anyone. And that's unfortunately where I've kind of fallen is I and, and, and I think not only on these big schemes, but there were little things that happened in my life. For example, there was a family that moved into our ward and they had children that were very close to our children's age. And so great family, loved them very much, didn't really know the kids that much because they were a little bit older and there were girls, you know, they're, the kids that were our kids' age were girls, ours were boys. And so there wasn't a lot of, but the younger ones, there was a couple of girls that were the same age as our girls. And we got to know them a little bit more. Anyway, we moved from that particular location across the Columbia River to Vancouver, Washington. And we were living in Vancouver. And one of these daughters moved into our ward. Now we knew her family, her mom and I, we knew each other. 
and um, lo love this family. Anyway, she moved into the ward and I knew her. She was she was one of the older daughters that I didn't know that well. Uh, I think she may have already been graduated and on her, on her way to um, college when the family moved in. But regardless, um, she moved in with her second husband. Now, I knew her story. Her story was that she had met a young man at a youth activity, a young single adult activity, that they had gotten married and that immediately on their honeymoon night, he woke her up, pushed her out of the bed and said, if I'm sleeping, if I'm not sleeping, you're not sleeping. And that's where the abuse started. And then she had a child and um, the, ch the child, um, uh, he was abusive. I can't remember the whole story, but regardless, they got divorced and they, she would tell these horrendous stories of having to legally drop off this child with this ex-husband and how she could hear them yelling. She would go back and sit in her car. She could hear her baby crying. She could hear this man yelling. And it was just, oh, just devastating, right? So now she's remarried and she starts talking about this new husband who was, I think, a member of the, and I could have my facts wrong. Um, he was either a member of the police force in Vancouver, Washington, or he was on the fire department, but one of the um, first responders, he was either a policeman or a fireman. And he was just this quiet guy that came to church and would kind of nod when you walked past him in the hallway. He, she started bad mouthing him really like he doesn't let me do this and he won't allow me to do that. And, and she, he calls me fat all the time, but when I try to get on a, a diet or eating program, he won't let me. And, and just, a, and he, she would tell anybody, I mean, walking down the street, sitting in relief society, being in the relief society kitchen, any opportunity that she had, she would bad mouth this guy. And I'm, I'm like, what a jerk. I can't believe what a creep this guy is. How does he show his face at church with her telling everybody in the ward this horrible story? So then, of course, my husband was a bishop. So she goes in and she talks to him and she's telling him all the horrible things that 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 he's doing. And I think they had a baby that passed away shortly after birth. And so there was heart tugs on that story. Anyway, it was all a lie. It, this guy was the nicest guy in the world. And she, I think she has some mental problems. And there was another lady in the ward that was truly married to a um, someone who had mental illness. And he was bipolar. He was physically and verbally abusive. And what she said was, what I talked to her one time, and she said, the problem is when you've got women like this that are telling lies, then when I'm telling the truth, no one believes me. And that's the problem with these lies and these frauds, that there are women out there. Right now, there are women out there telling the story of what Tim Ballard did, but nobody believed them because Tim had this facade that was stronger and he had so many popular and successful businesses behind him that who are they? Who, what's their criteria? What did, did they tw spend 12 years in Homeland Security? No. Who are you? You just went on an op. You're, you're a gullible, dumb woman. Why would we believe you? So it's just, it's, it's a bad thing to be skeptical, but in a way, I think it's a good thing 
to question. It kind of goes into questioning the beliefs of the whole history of the formation of this Mormon church. So let's enough of that, but I think that's a good preface. Let's bring Lynn on so that he can share his fabulous research and knowledge. This video is a YouTube supplement to my book, Lying for the Lord, the Paul H. Dunn Stories. It's about accessing restricted LDS historical records. The LDS church still hides sensitive historical records and lies about their existence. Now he's going to bring that up and let me just um, let me just preface this with this little tidbit of beautifulness. Is a confusing word uh, in some aspects. We don't encourage doubt and the scriptures condemn it. Mm. On the other hand, questions, sincere desire to know that aren't accompanied. Do you hear how he's saying we don't encourage doubt and he does that word salad mess where Mormons now are redefining words. I mean, it's like we've decided that translation actually means that there was a catalyst or revelation and translation really don't mean that something was revealed. It was that it was a catalyst for a new thought or new idea. So it's so typical of Mormonism right now. We're redefining words. And so what um, Oaks, Dallin Oaks is saying here is we don't encourage doubt. And is if that is not a number, that is, in fact, a, one of the signs of a cult is when you discourage any kind of information outside of the information that they've given you. So this is what he's saying here. And I, I love the smile. I love how they smile through the indoctrination. With a presumption of, of uh, rejection uh, are something that we that we wish to encourage. And, and some, uh, some are uh, saying that the church has been hiding the fact that there is more than one version of the, of the first vision, which is uh, just a, a, a f not true. The facts are we don't study, we don't go back and search what has been said on the subject. For example, Dr. James B. Allen. Okay, I have to interrupt here a little bit. He goes on to say, we don't study, we don't look back on the history, we're gonna move forward, which is also an excuse that is given a lot by the church. They're like, well, that happened 180 years ago. We're not gonna look back on the things that were done. We're gonna look forward and we're only going to talk about the good things that are going on now. What's interesting is if we don't look back, we don't learn from our history. And with what's going on in um, the Middle East right now, if you don't know what the history is, if you don't look back on how all of this discontent started, how are we going to move forward? So it's very, that's a very scary indoctrination that is given in the church a lot. Uh, the BYU in 1970, he, he, he produced a, uh, an article for the church magazines explaining all about the different versions of the first vision. How long ago was that article? 1970. That was we've back in 1970. So been hiding that for a long time. Yeah. Oh, this is one of the most frustrating. This was, a, and here's the thing that's so ironic about this. The idea that he's talking about fraud, talking about lying or hiding things. This was 
uh, entitled face to face with these two general authorities. And they made it out as they portrayed it as if they were going to sit down on a panel and young people were going to be encouraged to um, ask questions, ask us anything, we're here for you, ask us anything. And then, but what was ironic is someone would ask a question and then they would say, you know, I gave a talk about that at BYU. Let me read it to you. I'm like, how, if this was impromptu, if you didn't know what questions were going to be asked ahead of time, how would you have your talk ready to go? All laid out and, and ready to answer. How would you have that? There were so many times in this face-to-face -face that their answer that they gave uh, they would be, uh, President Ballard quoted a talk that he had given at BYU and Oaks quoted something that he had written and read years ago. How would you have that information? You could not bring enough books with you if you had no idea what questions were going to be asked. And then you would have the, you know, oh, well, yeah, that reminds me of a talk I gave at BYU. Why, let me find that quote. Why, here it is, uh, Joseph Smith and the Magical Worldview. This is what I said. I mean, it was so fake. It was a lie. The fact that they were even trying to make it out like they were just randomly random picked questions from young adults all over the world. And here's here's the answer. That's a that's a perfect example of lying and hiding and putting forth a facade. So I just thought that was really interesting. Let's let's uh, go back to. And I also love the fact that he mentions that this talk this uh, there was an article written in a church magazine. Now, someone correct me, but if I remember it, I don't think it was in the Ensign. I think it was in the Children's Friend. I could be wrong there. But 1970, I was a I was I'm going to tell you now, I'm just going to admit it. I was a sophomore in high school in 1970. I, I don't think I was reading the Ensign. Um, I don't think, and here's, here's another thing, this idea that you can hide something in an article rather than actually present it over the pulpit at a general conference, which is broadcast worldwide. There's another thing that is, that is a lie to say that, no, we weren't hiding anything. We told you about this back in 1970. That's been what, I don't know, 50 years ago. It's just absurd. It's just absurd. And if you don't have a skeptical mind, if you don't, doubt or if you're not comfortable with doubting or questioning as president oaks has asked you not to do then you just fall for it what's the next thing you're going to tell me but regardless let's move on to lynn he's much more fun to listen to one caveat this presentation is mostly for scholars and journalists trying to access mormon church archival material it may be of some interest to uh, church history buffs it's about my failed quest to get records. I stumbled across the LDS Church's surprisingly corrupt record access procedures while researching an article for Salt Lake Magazine. The article is about a 1913 Hollywood-style movie authorized and partly funded by the church. I sought records I was certain the church had and thought they would release. So he goes on to talk about, he was trying to find some information on this movie that was made. And a lot of this um, YouTube is about his struggles to get information on this movie. And he talks a lot about um, asking for it, being told they don't have it, uh, being told they couldn't find it, that there's no record of it any longer. And in the end, he finally does get some truth. But 
the lies that were told to him by church historian, archival people were just unbelievable. So let, I'm going to fast forward just a little bit because um, we don't, I love this though. This is really good. Let's, let's, uh, let's do this. Tom Cruise plays a lieutenant who cross-examines a, an officer uh, played by uh, Jack Nicholson and uh, Cruise is trying to get the, the, the truth from the witness. And the movie has the very famous line, you can't handle the truth. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Now, how often have we heard that? A boy K. Packer was an absolute, uh, this was probably his, his mantra, that we don't need to hear the truth, that the truth is not faith building. And anything that is said in the church or any records, any history that is published about the church should be faith promoting because we can't handle the truth. And it continues to this day, thinking that we're not smart enough, we don't have enough ability to know that two things can be true at the same time, that we're just children, that we need to be coddled and, and, and protected from the truth. And that has caused a lot, that, that has caused all of this problem because it was not anything about, I mean, I was in the church for over 55 years. I was an active member that participated and served in many capacities. I wore those stupid garments from the time that I was 20 years old until I was mm, 67. So it's just a fallacy to try to tell people that you leave church because you're not strong enough to endure or you want to sin. I mean, that's just ridiculous. I mean, for it, it's, it's ridiculous but it builds other people up to a level where they can say, look how strong I am. Look how faithful I am. Has nothing to do with the church history that was absolutely jaw-dropping for me. It was, it was I couldn't believe it. And it, it sent me down a desire to know more path. And then that just led to more truth. So it's just so wrong. Let's go on. For decades, LDS leaders, in essence, have been saying the same thing to their followers. You can't handle the truth about your own church's history. But what about all the transparency talk? Former President Gordon B. Hinckley said, we have nothing to hide. Our history is an open book. Nothing to hide? President Hinckley made the statement in 1985, just after the church was caught hiding records in connection with a massive historical documents fraud and two pipe bomb murders. His statement that the church had nothing to hide simply was not true. He was lying for the Lord. Just very quickly, how many of you knew about the whole Mark story? I mean, I... I have to tell you, President Hinckley, when I was in the United States Navy stationed in Japan, President Hinckley came over. I think he was the one that dedicated the space, uh, or not dedicated, but rather announced that there would be a temple built 
in Tokyo. And we went to the huge conference where the apostles came and they announced that they would be building a temple in Tokyo. And so that was probably, it must have been in 75, in 1975, because that's when we were there. And I heard about Mark Harmon, I think later on, obviously, um, but I, I, I did not know any of the history of the finances, the money that he was paid, who they got to pay money, how they contacted people and asked them to pay to purchase certain documents so that they could not be tied back to the church. I didn't know any of that. None of that was told. I mean, come on. They, they weren't telling the whole story. Why do public figures lie? Sometimes in public, on camera. Maybe they think their adherents can't handle the truth. Maybe the leaders themselves can't handle the truth. Maybe because lies are often very effective. Church leaders' license to lie is historical. It goes back to the beginning at the outset of church history when founder Joseph Smith lied about practicing polygamy. Lying for the Lord became part of the fabric of Mormonism and continues today. Now, just a, a, a real brief thing. As I mentioned, there's a podcast out there. I'm not going to mention what it is because I don't want to send you guys over. She doesn't need more views. Um, but she, her, her method of thinking is, how could Joseph Smith have been practicing polygamy if he said he wasn't? That's it. She believes that he was a prophet of God. Therefore, it is impossible for him to lie. He said he wasn't He wasn't practicing polygamy. A few months before he died, he said, how could I handle more than one wife? I can barely handle one. Um, that's a paraphrase. But um, And therefore, it's true. Therefore, it is true. And all of the other records, all of the women who they have their diaries and they have their affidavits and they have all this stuff. All of those are lies because the prophet himself said this. That's where the danger of this kind of thinking comes in. It's amazing. Hiding and lying. The proclaimed only true church has a fundamental problem with telling the truth about its history. As an example, that 1985 bomb explosion I just uh, talked about uh, brought that fact to light in dramatic fashion. It involved the most notorious murder in Utah history and greatest historical document fraud in American history. In 1985, document dealer Mark Hoffman murdered two Utahns connected with historical Mormon records. This is a shot of his sports car where he was uh, going to place a third bomb to kill someone else and it accidentally went off in his car, injuring him. Hoffman's forged documents fooled even the LDS church's first presidency. Here's Hoffman on the left and he dealt primarily with Gordon B. Hinckley who was in the first presidency at the time. And this record, that he gave the church in 1980 purported to show characters used in the translation of the Book of Mormon. And of course it was, it was a fraud. His fraud concept was this. He knew church leaders locked embarrassing documents in a vault. 
He knew they would buy his forged historical controversial Mormon documents to keep them from being published by reporters, scholars, or anti-Mormon Christians. It was a, a historical records intensive case. Here, Hoffman is conferring with his attorney about uh, the records, and I was a reporter at the time meeting with them uh, as I covered the story for KSL News in Salt Lake. One of the key letters was the so-called Salamander Letter. It was purported to have been written in 1830 from Martin Harris to W.W. W. Phelps. It was about an angel appearing to Joseph Smith, showing him the location of some golden plates that had been buried in a hill. And according to the letter, this is what the letter said, when Smith dug up the gold plates, a white salamander appeared, which transformed itself into a spirit. Not, it wasn't about the angel that the, in the church story of the event. Here's how it was portrayed in a drawing and the Salt Lake Tribune made a cartoon out of the white salamander. Indeed, that was part of an editorial cartoon at the time. I called it the cat out of the bag uh, cartoon where you have a white salamander, uh, the, the letter springing out of the first presidency's vault where it had been hidden away, but exposed because of the, the murder and uh, document uh, controversy. There was another letter uh, purported to have been written by Joseph Smith in his own hand to Josiah Stoll. And in it, of course, it was false, a fake letter. 19-year-old Joseph Smith wrote his employer claiming a clever spirit was guarding buried treasure being sought with a divining rod. Gordon Hinckley paid $15,000 for it in January of 1983, and Hoffman uh, then told a collector that President Hinckley said that letter will never see the light of day. It was placed in the first presidency's vault. But rumors spread that the church had bought the stole letter, even though they were trying to keep it a secret. Church spokesman Jerry Cahill said, the church doesn't have the letter. It's not in the church archives or the first presidency's vault. But when it became clear that some Mormon scholars had photocopies and were going to turn them over to the press, the church came clean. Cahill admitted his earlier statement was in error. The purported letter was indeed inquired by the church, he said. For the present, it is stored in the first presidency's Okay, how many times, what's the saying? Uh, the first time it's your fault, the second time it's my fault, something about, you know, you get over, hit over the head by a two by four. Um, how many times do you have to have denials? And then when they're caught, then they say, okay, yeah, fine. We lied about it, we were hiding things. How many times, we just had that with the SEC, when they were finally caught, and the SEC fined them and the record came out publicly, then they had to admit, they still did not admit that it was done intentionally. They claimed that it was done, it was a mistake and they're very sorry about it. But this has been going on from the beginning, from Joseph Smith 
And I am one of the things that, oh, let me think here if I can just remember. Oh yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go back to this, but one of the things, let me just really quick. Did I forget to include it? I may have, I'll have to bring it up anyway. Um, when you've got so much evidence that the Book of Mormon was a 19th century creation and you have all of the papers and diaries and testimonies and people are still just like, no, no, no. I love what they said on the Morley Schaefer 60 Minutes where there's just this desire to not miss out. You want to be a part of the group. You also want to be successful. And what did they say? President Nelson in this last conference said that he thinks that he became a renowned cardiac surgeon because he paid that $1.50 on his $15 a month stipend. Because he paid his tithing, he was a successful physician. Because these people pay their tithing, they are successful tech owners. That is the message. It's the prosperity gospel right there. And if that isn't exactly what Lynn Packer is talking about, I don't know what is. So yes, let's go back here. Archives. He was caught essentially lying for the Lord. After selling the church dozens of fake records, Hoffman turned to murder to cover up his crimes and was eventually charged criminally for that and for fraud. He pled guilty to fraud and murder, but it was after a preliminary hearing. Here I am as a reporter just chatting with Hoffman. He, he wouldn't do uh, direct interviews. And after he pled guilty, uh, he continued to not do interviews. So a lot of his story remains a mystery. Fast forward to today. The church continues paying a heavy price for suppressing truths about its history. An increasing number of members have been discovering those truths via non-official sources, especially on the internet. The church has conceded the truth of some embarrassing facts by posting the so-called essays on its website, lds.org. And here's a, a typical uh, gospel topic essay example about the Book of Mormon translation. The official version for years is that, and here a uh, drawing uh, depicts it, that Joseph Smith had looked directly at the golden plates and dictated his translation to a scribe. But according to the you know, the essay that was posted, it says, according to these accounts, Joseph placed either the interpreters, Walters, also known as layman Walters. Whoops, sorry. Let me go back. Let me go back. Go back. Go back. Here we go. Stone in a hat, pressed his face into the hat to block out extraneous light and read aloud the English words that appeared on the instrument. So it was the so-called rock in a hat translation method. Richard Bushman is a highly respected Mormon historian who studied at Harvard, BYU, and Columbia. He was an LDS bishop, a state president, but uh, Bushman, apparently under authority of the church, has been going around the United States speaking with groups of Mormons who were concerned and some of them even very surprised, if not shocked, about some of the information the church is posting on its website about uh, historical facts. 
And here's what he says. He said, for the church to remain strong, it has to reconstruct its narrative. He's, he's basically saying it needs to rewrite its history. And he said, the dominant narrative is not true. It can't be sustained, is what he's been saying. And you wondered if he had said that 20 years ago, whether he would have been excommunicated. And he said, there have been so many disruptive facts come on the scene. And he gives an example, the seer stone and a hat. And he says um, he would be told by members he's talking to things like, why wasn't I told this before? They've been lying to me all along. That was my experience. I don't know why, but it was the beginning. It wasn't everything. But when I found out about the rock and a hat that I had never heard before, and as I've mentioned on other podcasts that I've done, my children saying the Book of Mormon stories, I had pictures of Joseph Smith and the golden plates in my home. And to have that, and then the light bulb moment when you realize that you've been lied to, and your first instinctual action is to go, what else have you lied about? And that's what sends you down the rabbit hole. It's silly that something like that was the was the beginning of my my resigning my membership from the church, but it was. And I think it is. It's this misunderstanding that if you hide the truth, that that will be faith building. It's not true. And he said they feel a sense of betrayal and some even rage and anger about the church having lied to them about the history. There's been a lot of statements about transparency and the church opening up. Apostle Russell Bauer. I'm going to skip past that a little bit. Opaque, not transparent. Not transparent. It seems like they had circled the wagons for the siege. Just, uh, you know, it's the sort of the ongoing bunker uh, mentality. Let's skip past this a little bit. And these um, letters were sent to the Utah Moving Picture Company in Los Angeles. And I have. Okay, so he's talking now about trying to get the information that he was um, trying to receive about that movie that was made in 1913. Um, let's see. History Library to Packer email. Let's go through this. Well, Presiding Bishop Rick and Joseph F. Smith collections found nothing still, even after a more intensive search. The email referred to a single document that had already been online for a long time. They disclosed that they had looked for the same records before for a BYU film historian uh, years before and had found nothing. And they said, this has been a long time mystery. They couldn't figure out themselves what happened to these records. Okay, let's get past this a little bit. Okay, here we go. And this is, I love when, talk about a dog with a bone. Would probably be denied. I asked why I was not told about the separate record keeping three weeks earlier. I also pointed out that librarian Thorpe said he had searched first presidency records and stated the obvious, the previous responses were extraordinarily deceptive and dishonest. How many times can you hear that? extraordinarily deceptive and dishonest. How many times do you hear that before you go, uh, I'm out? 
I don't want to do this anymore. Just amazing. I continued in my email that the history library's position that the missing records was a mystery can't really be a mystery if they didn't check all the records. And I repeated my surprise that given the church's claimed greater transparency that my request was not handled. All right, let's go back here because we're gonna skip past this a little bit. I and the vault this. is down there in the southeast corner of the first floor and it's managed by the secretary of the first presidency. And it's an actual light bank vault with a huge round uh, thick door. There are likely other vaults as well. Now the next slide will show where the first presidency archives have been transferred since 1917. The sort of relocations of what they call the vault. And in 1917, it was moved from across the street to the administration building when that building was constructed, where I just showed you in the previous slide. Then in 1972, it was moved to the east wing of the church office building. And now it was a locked room, but they still called it the vault. And so you had sort of one vault and then uh, another remote location for the vault. Then again, in 2009, when they constructed the historical library, yet again, another locked room was created and called the First Presidency's Vault. And there's also a locked area of the uh, so-called Granite Vault up Little Cottonwood Canyon that is apparently under the First Presidency's control. And really, who knows how records have been going uh, back and forth and when that happened. Now on July 27th, the executive secretary for the First Presidency, Brooke Hales, remember I said he's the one who actually manages the First Presidency vault. Okay, I'm gonna skip past this just a little bit here. Um, and he, cause he's talking about his appeal and his desire to get some more information. We've and... been truthful. Anna said, we have nothing further to add. So essentially the email said, we've got two letters. We're not talking to you anymore. So that ended my search for records through the church. Why is that, why is that an accepted uh, answer? We've, we've, we told you the truth. We're not talking about it anymore at the end. Can you imagine in any other corporation if that was the statement that was made or just any part of your life, if that was the state, but everybody accepts that so willingly. So I sought some outside expert commentary. Okay, I'm going to skip this past a little bit here. All right, let's, let's, I love this quote about Brent. Let's go back here. Uh, greatly since he was there. I asked Brent Metcalf, a Mormon historian who was a former Mark Hoffman confidant, does, still does a lot of research at the church library. And Brent said this, there are groups within the historical department and within the hierarchy, he means the leadership of the church, who are genuinely making a good faith effort to be more transparent. He said the shift toward transparency is the best thing they could have done for the health and longevity of the church. And about my situation, he said, why would they try to hide that? They're not doing anyone any favors, certainly not themselves. 
I also talked to an unnamed Mormon historian familiar with the church's restricted access policy, and he didn't want his name used because he still, still deals with them a lot. He said, I don't see how the guidelines would restrict access to an early film about the history of the Latter-day Saints. He said, I would have supposed access would have been. He's, isn't that even something as simple as the movie that was made in um, 1913? So then he goes on a little bit. Let's see. Let's get to the kind of conclusion. Here we go. Access to one of the skeletons. Now even tougher guardians. Uh, there's tougher guardians of the records and of the faith controversial records. It's like a bulldog protecting him. It's this thing all over again. You can't handle the truth. At least the members can't. Okay, maybe a few bits and pieces that we control through the gospel uh, essays. History repeats itself. Remember Gordon Hinckley in 1985? We have nothing to hide. Our history is an open book. And President Dieter Uchtdorf in the first presidency in 2014 said, transparency and openness keep us clear of the negative side effects of secrecy. We always need to remember that transparency and openness keep us clear of the negative side effects of secrecy or the cliche of faith promoting rumors. Hmm. Truth and transparency complement each other. Satan, according to President Uchtdorf, is behind the doubt raised by the critics. He said there are many who create doubt about everything and anything. Satan is the great deceiver, the accuser of the brethren. Okay, let me just go back to the 60-minute thing. Where do you think Satan is? Is Satan involved in the person that doubts someone's story? Or is Satan involved, if there was a Satan, please don't get me started on that, in the person making the fraud, lying and cheating people out of their money? Where is Satan? Let's just go back for just a second. Filled with examples. Mr. J's library is replete with documents about cons, scams, and hoaxes of all kinds. Amazing animals. And the cynocephalus was often featured on circus lots. And then uh, eventually people realized that the cynocephalus was a baboon wearing later hosen. <laughs> Celebrated con men, including Count Victor Lustig. Uh, this is an original wanted poster of the Count. Uh, one of the things he did in France was that he was able to sell the Eiffel Tower for scrap metal. And he was able to do it twice, <laughs> which, which, is, which is sort of wonderful. Mr. J reports that over the years, people really have tried to sell the Brooklyn Bridge, as well as Nelson's column in Trafalgar Square in London. And in another cautionary tale, still unfolding, pigeons were both the investors and the investment. Arlen Galbraith, who called himself the Pigeon King, convinced hundreds of American and Canadian farmers there was good money to be made raising the birds for food. And everybody we talked to said this guy was, he was on the up and up. Nobody had a bad word to say about him anywhere that we could find. So Aaron and Jolene Humbert, Ohio farmers, signed up. They've had such tremendous demand for the live birds. The Pigeon King assured investors that pigeons would replace chickens in every pot in America and the world. 
All right. So let's just let's just bring this back up again. Father of all lies. For those who already embrace the truth, his primary strategy is to spread the seeds of doubt. Please explain to me how you can prevent yourself from being taken advantage by a con artist if you don't have some skepticism, if you don't question or doubt the story that you're being told. Now, the beginning of Morley Safer's 60 Minutes, he started saying that, you know, a lot of times greed is involved. And when people think it's a get rich quick opportunity, they're willing to look the other way. They're willing to say, I, I don't know, this sounds a little weird, Bernie Madoff's getting quite a return. I can't get that return or see that return on my investments in, in any other area. But I really kind of, and they were making a lot of money at first. And um, so there's a little bit of greed involved. There is a little bit of responsibility for the people that didn't really do their homework. But to put the blame on the person that's questioning rather than the person that's trying to pull something over your eyes, I think that is a huge sin right there. For example, he has caused many members of the church to stumble when they discover information about the church that seems to contradict what they had learned previously. It seems like, yeah. That seems to contradict <laughs> what they had learned previously is what yeah. it is. Yeah. It's exactly what I just said, Lynn. It seems to contradict what they had learned previously. What? What? He just said, he really is turning truth on its head. Uh, President Uchtdorf is essentially saying, it's okay for church leaders and educators to have used falsehoods and fiction to build faith-promoting history, but it's not okay for church critics or historians journalists to have used truth, true historical facts that may cast doubt on the official history. And of course, attributing this to the devil. Again, continuing with what I think is the LDS Church's game plan, attribute use of true but embarrassing historical facts to Satan, downplay LDS.org's posting of sensitive historical facts. And what I mean by that is, is they really didn't trumpet this. Uh, this has been talked about quite a bit, how it was hidden. Um, my, when my mom came about a little over two years ago, and I asked her, I, I, I said something, and she said, where did you hear that? That's anti-Mormon. Where did you hear that? I said, actually, Mom, all I'm doing is reading you the, uh, the um, gospel topics, essays. It can be found on LDS.org, and she didn't believe me. She had never heard of it. My husband was a bishop. He'd never heard of it. So that is, we've all heard that story. That's just so, so true. They didn't send out an announcement to all the LDS wards or to Sunday school teachers and priesthood teachers. They just sort of posted it there because I think the plan is still to try and shield adult Mormons who have grown up with the, uh, with the, with the false history. And they'll use secrecy and deception to block scholar and reporter access to controversial historical facts that are still buried, but they will inoculate the youth with tiny doses of true historical facts using the term inoculate. 
Okay, how many of you have heard that? That that is a new term that's that's going out there, and I've noticed that that they are trying to introduce little tiny little soup spoonfuls of truth to the youth to try to kind of overcome this tsunami of people leaving the church because they're finding out true historical records and history. And um, so they are trying to, to inoculate the youth, but they've written off the old people as was shown in this last general conference, where it's most of the talks that were given, especially by the top three or four were basic primary talks that were, went right back to Joseph Smith's translation, Angel Moroni appearing, Book of Mormon is true. I mean, it went right back to 1970s, 1980s type of discussion. And so they are, they've kind of written off the old people because I do believe, which is really the podcast, my podcast's mission is to say, it's okay. Even if you've been in the church for 60 years, it's okay to find out new knowledge and go, uh, I don't want to belong to this organization any longer. I've been lied to. And uh, my money, it's its a Ponzi scheme. It's an, the entire church, the way it's set up is a Ponzi scheme. And um, so I do, I have noticed that there is some inoculation efforts being made on the youth. The rest of us, they've just, we're so, we've been so indoctrinated. They're like, we're, that's a lost cause. We don't care about that anymore. So sad. Defining inoculation, the medical term is to protect someone against a particular disease by injecting a small amount of the disease into them so that their body becomes immune to it. Now here's what's interesting. Mike Quinn is a renowned Mormon history scholar. In my view, maybe is the best. He was a return missionary, a Vietnam veteran, a professor at uh, BYU, and was later uh, pushed out of uh, forced out of BYU and then excommunicated. But in 1981, he was still at BYU. And this is when I just began teaching at BYU. And this is a decade before the internet. And listen to what he said as a historian who is writing about some of these uh, sensitive historical facts. He said, the central argument of the enemies of the LDS church is historical. And if we seek to build the kingdom of God by ignoring or denying the problem areas of our past, we are leaving the saints unprotected. He said, believing Mormon historians like myself seek to write candid church history in a context of perspective in order to inoculate the saints against the historical disease germs that apostates and anti-Mormons may thrust upon them. And when I talked to Mike about this, he said the concept's term, that is inoculate, was coined by Leonard Arrington in 1972, almost 10 years before that, who was church historian and wanted to begin this process. Quinn in, uh, continued to say later in 2011 that the church should start preparing them that is kids in seminary with just a tidbit a week. That way they're not going to be blindsided by those primarily evangelical Protestants who use Mormon history as a battering ram to destroy the faith of members of the church who have not heard of these things. So that's Mike Quinn. Now in 2016, 
Okay, so he's going to go on to talk a little bit about how President Ballard actually had, while addressing the CES um, in a CES meeting, he asked them to start, you know, that it's 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 2016 now. We can no longer just bear our testimony like they did at conferences last time. We can no longer just say when someone asks a difficult question, the answer cannot be, well, I know the church is true and I have a testimony of the Book of Mormon, that we actually have to start teaching the children uh, the truth a little bit at a time. So that's what he's referring to. I want to talk a little bit about, I want to go a little bit before we finish up here to give you a perfect example here. Um, there's the unfortunate part of, and it was even true in conference, the unfortunate part of the gospel and what's involved in all of these Ponzi schemes is the money. It's all about the money. And when you go through and you look at some of the church history, you can see where everything that went wrong was because it was, it was established with greed. And I want to just start out by saying, who are these guys? If you've been, if you're a member of the church, you know the story of Laman and Lemuel. They are the older brothers of Nephi. You can find their story in First Nephi chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, with the family, talks about the family. They're portrayed as selfish doubters that resented leaving their riches. That was kind of how they were identified, Laman and Lemuel. Now, these are not common names. I don't know anybody named Laman and Lemuel. So when you hear things like that, you might think, well, this must be a true story of ancient uh, people from the Middle East that came over because I've never heard the name Laman and Lemuel. And so, but let's let's just um, talk about, now I don't think I can read this. I'm going to make it bigger so that I can. All right. So, um get out of my way. So I'm going to tell you, I'm actually, I'm going to skip this slide and just go right into a video that explains a little bit about maybe where these names came from. Was well known in the early 1800s for his self-proclaimed abilities of glass looking or looking into a peepstone to find hidden objects such as treasure, animal magnetism, mesmerism, magic, palmistry, conjugation, fortune telling, and clairvoyance. When Lumen was around 10 years old, his family moved from Winchester, Connecticut, to Burke, Vermont, which was founded by his uncle, Lemuel Walters. Lumen received a scientific education in Paris. After returning to the United States in 1818, he began to practice as a physician and occult expert. Also in 1818, Deputy Sheriff James Giddings of Boscon, New Hampshire, offered a reward for the arrest of a transient person, calling himself Lehman Walters, who has for several days past been imposing himself upon the credulity of the people in this vicinity by a pretended knowledge of magic, palmistry, and conjuration. A document by Diedrich Willers, Jr. of Fayette, New York, said, Fortune tellers are consulted as to the future. Many in this neighborhood, wherever they wish to find out something which is lost or pry into hidden mysteries, will consult Dr. Walters. By 1822, Lumen had taken up residence in Gorham, Ontario County, New York. In 1822 and 1823, Lumen Walters served as the seer during a treasure dig, using his peepstone to locate treasure on the property of Abner Cole in Palmyra, New York. Joseph Smith Sr., Joseph Smith Jr., and Alvin Smith also participated in the dig. According to Cole, Walters the magician sacrificed a cock for the purpose of propitiating the Prince of Spirits, and he took his book and his rusty sword and his magic stone and his stuffed toad and all his implements of witchcraft and retired to the mountains near Great Sodus Bay.
Cole also reported that Lumen Walters was Joseph Smith Jr.'s mentor in the occult. He printed in a weekly Palmyra newspaper called The Reflector. It is well known that Joe Smith never pretended to have any communion with angels until a long period after the pretended finding of his book, and that the juggling of himself or father went no further than the pretended faculty of seeing wonders in a peep stone, and the occasional interview with the spirit supposed to have the custody of hidden treasures. And it is also equally well known that a vagabond fortune teller by the name of Walters, who then resided in the town of Sodus, and was once committed to the jail of this country for juggling, was the constant companion and bosom friend of these money-digging impostors. In 1884, during the Braddon and Kelly debate, which was a public debate between the RLDS and the Church of Christ, in Kirtland, Ohio, Clark Braddon said, while acting in his primitive, supernatural capacity as water witch and money digger, Smith made the acquaintance of a drunken vagabond by the name of Walters, who had been a physician in Europe. This person had learned in Europe the secret of mesmerism or animal magnetism. This was entirely unknown in America except to a few in large cities who had read European papers. Smith learned this art and like all men with great passions, vitality and physical force, he was almost a prodigy in his mesmeric power. All casting out devils and raising the dead were merely a display of his great mesmeric power. Artemisia Beeman was the first wife of Mormon apostle Erastus Fairbanks Snow. She remembered that a man named Walters, son of a rich man living on the Hudson south of Albany, received a scientific education, was even sent to Paris. After he came home, he lived like a misanthrope. He had come back an infidel, believing neither in man nor God. He used to dress in fine broadcloth overcoat, but no other coat nor vest, his trousers all slitted up and patched, and sunburnt boots filthy. He was a sort of fortune teller, though he never stirred off the old place. This man was sent for three times to go to the Hill Camorra to dig for treasure. People knew there was treasure there. The man was one of those who sent for him. He came. Each time he said there was treasure there, but that he couldn't get it, though there was one that could. The last time he came he pointed out Joseph Smith, who was sitting quietly among a group of men in the tavern and said there was the young man that could find it, and cursed and swore about him in a scientific manner. Awful. Lucy Mack Smith, the mother of Joseph Smith, confirmed that a conjurer looked for the gold plates. She said, My husband soon learned that ten or twelve men were clubbed together, with one Willard Chase, a Methodist class leader at their head, and what was still more ridiculous, they had sent sixty or seventy miles for a certain conjurer to come and divine the place where the plates were secreted. The next morning, my husband concluded to go among the neighbors to see what he could learn with regard to their plans. The first house he came to, he found the conjurer and Willard Chase, together with the rest of the clan. Making an errand, he sat down near the door, leaving it a little ajar. They stood in the yard near the door and were devising plans to find Joe Smith's gold Bible. The conjurer was much animated, though he had traveled sixty miles the previous day and night. Presently the woman of the house became uneasy at the exposures they were making, and stepping through a back door, called in a suppressed tone loud enough to be heard by Mr. Smith. Sam, Sam, you are cutting your own throat. At this the conjurer bawled out at the top of his voice, I am not afraid of anybody, we will have them plates in spite of Joe Smith, or all the devils in hell. Also Mormon prophet Brigham Young explained that there was a necromancer that tried to get the gold plates three times, the same that Artemisia Beeman had claimed. Young said, I never heard such oaths fall from the lips of any man as I heard uttered by a man who was called a fortune teller and who knew where those plates were hid. So this is the story of a man that went by Lumen or Layman, and he was basically a, um, he was the person that taught Joseph Smith how to do magic. He had a peepstone, he did treasure digs. He was uh, really 
good at conjuring things and that he would have his ceremonies. And Joseph Smith Sr. and Joseph Smith uh, Jr. learned from him. Joseph Smith Jr. was really good at bringing people with a lot of knowledge into his group. And he would use their expertise and their knowledge and their experience to to do whatever he wanted to do. He, he himself did not have that, but he would take advantage of the people that did and try to, to copy them and use their expertise and have them, you know, just like John Bennett, he used, he used their talents to be successful in whatever way he wanted. So that's a little bit of a man named Layman, who then became a person that was bitter because he thought Joseph Smith had actually found a treasure and he felt Joseph Smith owed him something for that. So that's one of the stories. Now we have, um, let me take that one off the, um, okay. So now we're going to go to there. There we have our layman and let's move on to uh, this this story. Now, this is interesting. So this is a picture of a Joseph Smith Sr.'s frame home in Manchester, New York. And um, this was, let me see here, if I can go down to where I can, no, no, no. Okay, so this story, it says a few years after the completion of the Smith's log home, Elvin Smith began constructing a home in which his parents could live comfortably. He would often say to the neighbors, I am going to have a nice, pleasant home for father and mother to sit in and everything arranged for their comfort. They shall not work anymore as they have done. Elvin was able to finish raising the frame in 1822 and all the materials had been purchased at the time of his death. A consequence of Elvin's death, the Smiths hired a neighbor, Russell Stoddard, to finish the home. The Smiths probably moved into their home in 1825. And some of the things that happened there, Joseph Smith and Emma Smith were living there when Joseph received the plates from Moroni. Oliver Caudry stayed there with the Smith family while teaching school in the Manchester area. And the farm was purchased by George Albert Smith in 19. 07 and thereafter donated to the church. Joseph and Emma returned to this home after being married in January 1827, and they were living there when Joseph, Joseph first received the plates from Moroni. The Smith family endured several mob attacks here in an attempt to get the plates from Joseph. The plates were hidden under the hearth in this home as well as in the copper's shop on the farm. All right, so... Here's this beautiful home. Isn't that typical of the first son just wanting to take care of his parents that were financially making really bad decisions and and just, you know, living in as paupers and the son comes along and he's like, I'm going to help my parents out. That's just so typical. So then let's read on. Due to financial difficulties, the Smiths lost the farm in 1825 and it was sold to Lemuel Durfee. He allowed them to stay on the farm until they gathered with the church to Fayette in the fall of 1830. Oliver Caudry stayed with the Smith family here while teaching school in the Manchester area. And then the, the farm was purchased on behalf of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints by George Albert Smith. And so and then it has all of the um, resources listed there. So now we have a story of where did the name two men 
who uh, members of the Smith family had a bad taste in their mouth because they had in their minds kind of done them wrong. And uh, I mean, here they are having financial difficulties in this beautiful home that Elvin, that was just so loved by his brother. Elvin was just so loved by Joseph and he had built that home for their family and it ends up being sold to a man named Lemuel. I thought that was very interesting. So Lynn Packer to the rescue. He's going to tell us, he's going to take us down here. He's going to bring us to the end. What does he have to say? Later, Apostle Russell, Russell Ballard says this, inoculate, and he's saying this to uh, church educators, inoculate move this past rising generation so they can learn a little bit about these things without being totally shocked when they hear them for the first time. Again, what Mike Quinn, who was excommunicated, had said years and years earlier. Now, uh, near conclusion, just uh, sort of this update, <laughs> because uh, I, I was surprised by this. It was not the end of my attempted records access story. On August 25th, this is after they'd cut off communication, I got an email from the LDS History Library. It just came out of the blue, and apparently Tyson Thorpe had sent it. Here's what it said. While helping with another request, one of my coworkers came across some correspondence to Joseph F. Smith that deal with 100 years of Mormonism. They're from Harry A. Kelly and H.M. Russell. I want to express my apologies for not finding these in my review a few weeks ago. I wasn't provided with Kelly and Russell as potential correspondence, so I wasn't looking for correspondence from them. Here's my email uh, analysis of the email. Okay. So he just goes on to dispute what this guy said. It's just a lie. It's a lie. Oh, hey, I was just going through some paperwork and I found your email and Oh, it was that that you were looking for. You know, somebody else asked me about that. And that made me think, oh, that must be that thing that Lynn Packer is looking for. I mean, the entire thing is a lie. And if you compare that to, as I mentioned, this was a, a YouTube that, that Lynn had done when he was talking about the book that he had written about Paul H. Dunn lying for the Lord. He's just pointing out how these people are taught, how they're raised that it's okay to lie. And I don't know Tim Ballard's history. I don't know if he is a uh, was born in the church and, and was indoctrinated from the time he was young, that it's okay to tell a lie as long as the end purpose is a good thing somehow. Although as we're all finding out, there was no saving children. So that's all a, that's all a lie as well. But um, that's the, that's the part that is, you know, we're indoctrinating these children. When you talk about indoctrinating them with true church history, I don't know how they're going to do it because at some point you can't say, all right, I know we didn't tell you this, but the truth is the Book of Mormon is a 19th century concoction that was made up by Joseph Smith. How are you going to do that? I don't know how you can do that. So I don't know how far they can take this indoctrination that they talk about. At some point, they have to admit it's all made up. Joseph Smith came from a very poor family. He was surrounded by Methodist people and, and the, the burnt out, the, the, the 
what's the word I'm looking for? The, um, oh gosh, what is that word I'm looking for? The gatherings that were being done. And he saw the money that was being brought in. And he thought I could save my family and I could make money if I create a church and then people would donate money to me. And then I will build a house for my parents like Elvin did. And I will save my parents. And he did. He did. I mean, he he gave his father a prominent position, even though he was a, an alcoholic and a, a loser as far as a provider goes. And his mother adored him and he became the hero. He took Elvin's place and he became the hero of the family. So I just thought this was fascinating. Let's see if we can end on this Um uh, a reminder with this message. And if you don't, if you don't start looking each other's in the eyes, you're going to miss that when you're my age. And some, that's when they used to tag you by somebody. He sent me a text, and I said, "Give me his name. <laughs> I, I want to call him." <laughs> and she knew right where I was going. I was, I would have rung his bell big time. <laughs> but. and to talk to others. It's pretty simple, really. And that is just your age, my parents were not acting. Well, I lost my spot, dang it. I lost my clip. Should have shrunk it down. But I love when President, when Dallin Oaks turns to Ballard and goes, boo, I hope our voices are haunting you. They are, they are haunting us. And so I hope you love this information. Please go to YouTube. Just Google Lynn Packer. Uh, as, as you can see, this, this uh, YouTube that he made was made back in 2016. That's how long he's been investigating truth claims and history being hidden and false teachings that are being made. And that's how long he's been trying to warn us. And we just looked the other way. We believed the people that were pulling off the biggest Ponzi scheme there is. So I hope you enjoyed that. Please, as I mentioned, go to Lynn Packer's work. I love him. And I'm going to highlight his work as much as I possibly can because it's amazing. So stand up, find your truth, become visible, be okay with who you are. Don't accept someone else's explanation for who you are and who you need to be. All right. Let's do you today, especially for all of you women. Bye.